This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up and sun down, so... Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. We're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. Let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello and welcome to Countrywide. I'm Bridget Herman. Today on the show, an ancient grain is getting thrown into the spotlight. AI is being used to help monitor a critically endangered species on an outback station. And would you roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty to help a farmer feed you? Well, one farm has adopted this model, keeping customers very involved in the food growing process. This is about the people that we feed sharing in both the risk and the reward of producing food. That's coming up. But first, are you a backyard beekeeper? Thousands of amateur beekeepers across the country are selling off their smokers and hanging up their bee suits. It's all to do with the pest varroa mite, which weakens bees and spreads viruses. Now, it was first found in Australia last year, and the industry did try to eradicate the mite, but efforts were unsuccessful. And now the strategy's turned to managing it instead. The president of the New South Wales Amateur Beekeepers Association says a thousand of its members had hives euthanized during the eradication program. And based on the experience with Varroa overseas, it's likely that half the nation's amateur beekeepers will cease production. Dr Lamorna Osborne told Kim Honan that increased costs and the effort required to manage Varroa will cause the exodus. It will become uneconomic or off-putting for some beekeepers. Even in Italy, where I visited about 15 years ago, where they had varroa mite, the beekeeper that I spent the day with was saying that he's thinking of giving up beekeeping. He did it as a profession, and it was turning from being a, a winter time where you could have a holiday and he would go skiing in the Alps. Suddenly, with the varroa mite, they have to start treating every three to four weeks. And the organisation of that and the time-consuming and expense of it made it very arduous to be keeping bees. I have had an academic suggest that uh, Varroa might could see um, at least half our amateur or semi-commercial beekeepers leave the industry. Is that a fair, I guess, estimation of the, of the I loss? I think that's a fair estimate. Yeah, that's, yep. that's devastating. I think it's a fair estimate, and it means that the cost of pollination is going to go up. And uh, we've also got to think about trying to stop it going across borders to at least slow down the pace of its expansion across Australia. And do you know how many amateur beekeepers had their hives destroyed, uh, euthanised in the last 15 months? I can tell you that nearly everybody in the Hunter Valley and everybody on the Central Coast I can't give you exact numbers, but it was devastating to go up and see those people when they'd had all their hives destroyed. And remember, they've also been going out to destroy hives when the going was tough and the organisation could have perhaps been better. The actual test that the government chose to use was an inappropriate test, which didn't help. In what way? Well, they, they chose the alcohol wash and you had to go down into the brood box, get nurse bees and actually make sure you didn't include the queen in the alcohol, otherwise she would die. It took about 20 minutes per hive and 
you could accidentally kill the queen. Everywhere else in the world, they've been using um, drone uncapping, which drones are unnecessary anyway, apart from fertilising the queen. You pull out the bodies of those sort of larvae, and you can immediately see the larvae. And the larvae of the varroa mite are actually, 97% of them are in that site. So it's been, let's just say, a, an attempt to stop varroa mite that's been flawed in many links along the chain. So there were um, 30,000 hives estimated to be euthanized uh, in the last 15 months. How many of those do you think were amateur, at least thousands? Yes, the, the 4,500 beekeepers that are in the Amateur Association, um, it's probably about 1,000 people that have had their hives euthanized. And what, what's the sort of the average size apiary do they have, like a couple of hives, 17? It could be 1 to 50. Usually it's 1 or 2 under 10. I've got 40. And you're um, in the Sydney area? Oh, my hives are actually up near Taree and they're fortunately just outside the purple zone at this stage. Yeah. Okay. Except the purple zone is no longer. We've got green and other zones. We've got contain and we've got movement. And at the moment, I have to say that uh, we're still in this flux state where we actually basically everybody's sitting put waiting on instructions. Mm, do you feel lucky that you didn't have to euthanise any of your hives? I feel very fortunate, but I also feel the weight of the grief of all those people who've actually had their hives euthanised and also who've been out doing that job, which turned out in the end to be futile. How soon do you think we're likely to see beekeepers leave the industry? I think it's happening already, yeah. We've had several people leave the industry because they've lost their income. There may, I can't ask, answer how many will restock, but in other countries in the world, about 50% of the beekeepers stopped keeping beehives when Varroa arrived. And so what other challenges do you see that Varroa mite will pose for amateur beekeepers? I think the costs and the time-consuming nature of these tests is going to deter a lot of them. I think that our reputation as a clean, green, chemical-free honey country, the last one in the world, is going to depend on what the government's decision is. Dr Lamorna Osborne, a GP, part-time beekeeper and the president of the New South Wales Amateur Beekeepers Association. And the four and a half thousand members of the ABA do also include beekeepers in southeast Queensland and Alice Springs. I'm Bridget Herman, bringing you the stories of what's on your plate and why it matters. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Well, do you eat much sorghum? A move is on to get people rethinking the grain for human consumption. In Australia, we grow about 2 million tonnes a year, but most of it goes to animal feed markets. Nate Blum is the CEO of industry group Sorghum United, and he told Michael Condon that sorghum has a number of environmental and nutrition benefits – and they've been known for centuries, but are now largely forgotten. Sorghum and millets are some of the first grains ever cultivated by mankind. What that means for us is that we evolved alongside with these grains. Uh, There's research that's been published in the journal Nature by the uh, Food for Health Center, which is located in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I live, uh, that show actually that after six years of research, they've been able to show that uh, the human gut microbiome is rebalanced by including sorghum and millet into the human diet. 
there's benefits uh, as well that have been recorded and documented in hundreds of uh, different publications around the world, scientific publications, that show benefits around anti-inflammatory disease, uh, anti-carcinogenic benefits, heart health, and uh, even di- anti-diabetic uh, benefits. Uh, sorghum and millets are lower in the, on the glycemic index, and they're highly nutritive. Uh, so that means that there's a lot of opportunity to reinclude these grains in human diets, not just our animal feed. Uh, and then, of course, if, you know there are uses for food, uh, for uh, uh, fuel and fiber as well. So ethanol production. So it's uh, these grains are what I consider to be heritage grains, heritage in the sense that uh, they're part of the human experience, but we've, we've forgotten them. Uh, so these these forgotten heritage grains. Our mission at Sorghum United is to help bring them back to the forefront. And they have environmental benefits too. I mean, they don't use as much water as some of the other crops. And uh, as you say, you know, and they they uh, work in really well with, uh, you know, as a rotation with other crops too, uh, you know, to keep diseases down. I'm glad you mentioned rotations, Michael, because, uh, you know, our, our, our message is always there's room on the table for everyone. And that means that we're not anti-corn, we're not anti-wheat or soy or rice or anything else. We're advocating for the inclusion of these crops into cropping systems. And let's talk about the environmental benefits and why you might want to do that. You mentioned breaking up pests and disease cycles. But there's also uh, benefits, as you mentioned, too, around water conservation. Sorghum and millets in particular use about a third of the water of uh, uh, comparable grains. Uh, So there's the water conservation there, too. And then, of course, as much of the world is dealing with uh, increased uh, problems with drought around climate change, uh, these grains, uh, when you don't have water uh, or you're experiencing drought, they will go dormant rather than dying. So that will affect your yield, but once you get a little bit of rain, just like the grass on your front lawn, it'll turn from brown into green, perk back up, and you will eventually get at least some yield. So we should be using you know, more sorghum, making more sorghum bread, maybe having some of the more porridges like they do in, in Africa, and we should be convincing Australians to do it as well as the people in uh, developing countries. And uh, I understand that one of your best-selling breakfast foods is something called wheat fix. Wheat fix is made from sorghum. Mm. So many Australians are already eating it and they may not realize it. I've just come from India. Now, India is a leader in sorghum and millets. They're actually the country that's pushed the International Year of Millets, which we're in at the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization. And that's because, you know, India, uh, parts of Asia and and West Africa and parts of East Africa, they still eat these grains on a regular basis. They're part of their staple diet. And I got to tell you, one thing that was really encouraging when I was in India was to visit with so many entrepreneurs that aren't just making bread. They're not just making bread, they're making snack foods, they're making uh, beer, they're making all sorts of different things with sorghum. Anything that you make with another grain, you can make with sorghum. It's gluten free. It's a non-GMO crop, which may or may not be important to your listeners. Uh, But if it's important to them and we have it, uh, you know, we have that attribute, then as farmers, we should be selling it. Nate Blum, the CEO of Sorghum United, based in Nebraska, America, talking to Michael Condon about growing sorghum for humans, not just livestock. You're listening to Countrywide. In a wildlife conservation first, artificial intelligence and 24-hour surveillance technology are being recruited to help monitor critically endangered species on a station in outback Queensland. The Australian Wildlife Conservancy has partnered with Kurabulka station owners North Australian Pastoral Company to set up 60 monitoring stations across the more than 630,000 hectare property. 
Surveillance cameras and bioacoustic recorders are being used to detect species like the plains wanderer, which is on the verge of extinction, along with the bilby and kawari. NAPCO CEO Alan Cooney spoke with Madeleine McCosker about the partnership. It's a broader program than Kurabuka, but it's a uh, partnership with, with the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, and it's about uh, us getting a better understanding of what uh, biodiversity we've got in the business, because we've known for quite a while that we've got, um, you know, we've got species represented on NAPCO stations, which are not necessarily represented uh, more widely in their native habitat, uh, and for for AWC, it's about um, you know them getting an understanding of what sustainable management looks like on a cattle operation and how that interacts with wildlife and you know the natural environment. And so there are a number of endangered or critically endangered species that do live on Kurabulka Station. And so, you know, what was it that made you at NAPCO want to take part in this program and, and really find out all you could? about these species? Oh, look, it, it's, uh, you know, we've got a, it's a 146-year-old company. And one of the things that interested us is that these species are here, like on our stations, that are not necessarily elsewhere. And we wanted to know why and what we were doing and what is repeatable, um, you know, management practice to, to ensure that those species are, are able to um, coexist with, you know, our commercial enterprises. So, so it was really a, an exercise in you know, self-reflection and understanding what we're doing that we can repeat uh, elsewhere across our business because we do have a we do have a long-term uh, you know corporate goal to be long-term sustainable like you know with, in which we talk internally about 100-year plans and those sort of things. So you know, 100-year plan means that we need to be keeping our land uh, much the same as it is now um, for the next hundred years, and um, we do face some some real challenges to that, of course, with the way the world is changing around us at the present. What kind of impact will this monitoring program have on what you're doing at this at this property and what impact in reverse will that have on the monitoring? We don't clear we don't clear land um, at NAPCA. Like ninety nine percent of our of our land's never been cleared and never been ploughed or fertilized or anything like that. So um, we're, we're, you know, quite conservative land managers. So, so I think, you know, it's more about what what we're doing, understanding what we're doing right, so that we can do more of it, and and also, but also, be sure that we don't inadvertently make decisions that that impact on the biodiversity. Because from a from a business point of view, like pure, purely from a you know cattle uh, operation point of view, we want that biodiversity on our land because we know that it gives us. Uh, healthy cattle and and uh, you know good commercial results if those cattle are healthy. So we're not inclined to want to overgraze the the land um, in any way, shape, or form because it, it you know ultimately leads to reduced commercial opportunities. So I think that's you know that's a, a key part of it. And and you know having managed that land for a long period of time, we sort of understand that. So the partnership you know is very beneficial to us because we get access to some real. Um, you know, ecological horsepower that um, that we wouldn't otherwise have in our business. CEO of the North Australian Pastoral Company, Alan Cooney. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. 
Are you a fan of onions? While inflation has pushed up the cost of many items, apparently the price of onions have remained stable at around $2 a kilo. Now that's pretty good news if you're trying to get in your five veg a day. South Australian dietitian based in the Riverland region, Felicity Morrill, told Sophie Holder that onions not only make food taste great, they can also help you feel great. So onions have a lot of um, benefits, both from a nutritional perspective, but also um, from a flavour perspective as well. So um, as most people know, they're a great flavour adder to our food and they form the base of a lot of the recipes that we cook. But from a general nutrition perspective, um, onions contain um, a, a substance called fructans, which is a type of carbohydrate that our bodies don't digest very well, um, but the bacteria in our large intestine do. So one of the biggest benefits of onions for our, for our is for our gut health um, because they're essentially providing food for our gut bacteria, which is really nourishing our gut microbiome, which has loads of links to different parts of our health, like our immunity, like um, reducing risk of allergies. Um, the list goes on. We're just learning more and more about gut health in general, and onions are one of those foods that um, are really great for our gut health. And do you think that these sorts of benefits are very well known or do you think onions are sometimes written off a little bit as just a bit of flavour but not much nutritional benefit? Yeah, I think so. I don't think many people think of onions at all when it comes to our gut health. So it's not commonly known. Um, but in saying that as well, onions are often written off for another reason um, in that a lot of people get an upset tummy from eating onion. And that, again, it's because of that type of um indigestible carbohydrate that's found in them and that for some people it's it's called a FODMAP it's a type of FODMAP which some of your listeners may have heard of before but our FODMAP foods aren't digested very well um, and as a result we can sometimes get some gut side effects like bloating like wind um, like loose bowels for some people and a lot of people avoid onion for that reason um, and it's really important that they don't because onion is such a beneficial food for our gut health it's really about finding the amount that each individual person can tolerate rather than excluding it completely. So, yeah, I think not only do some people not know about the benefits of onion, but some people cut it out um, for those reasons that I just explained. When we really don't want to be, we want to be including it in our diet um, most days where possible um, for those gut health reasons. Riverland dietitian Felicity Morell. John Telekidis from Matolo Family Farm says demand for onions has seen significant growth in the last few years. So probably over the last four to five years, we've had some significant growth in the onion side of the business and it has become a, a significant um, category for us. So, um, you know, growing well over 2,000 acres of, uh, of onions across three different sites um, in, the, in the current crop. So. What sort of things can you attribute that growth in onions to? Part of the, the growth has been around the growth within the category. Um, over the past sort of two years, you know, it's been much publicised with the, uh, the resurgence of the at-home cook and, and onions is a, is a significant staple within that um, you know, particular occasion. And there's also been you know, sort of some growth within specific customers um, and you know, through some of our relationships and agreements that we've had um, that has contributed to that growth also. And you mentioned that COVID growth, um, that was definitely something that we've heard from other people as well. Are you starting to see numbers dropping back down again or have they kind of consistently stayed at that growth level? No, with onions, a little bit different to potatoes. 
they, they have maintained the pre-COVID levels and, you know, sort of post-COVID as well. Um, we're finding that, you know, with the, with the amount of migrants coming in from particular countries, they're consuming much more onions as part of their daily or weekly um, repertoire. Um, that's, that's, that's also another significant contributor to the growth. How are the prices looking? We've heard that they have stayed relatively stable despite, you know, cost of living and, and a lot of produce jumping. Um, is that something that Matolo's seen? Yeah, there was a there was a bit of a spike last year, um, and that was partly driven by you know, surge in demand and you know, not having adequate enough um, volume across uh, the market to to supply to that demand. And this year, with favourable growing conditions, most growers have had um, relatively good yields and you know, relatively good quality, which has uh, you know, put a few more onions in the market and has driven uh, the price of browns down a bit. But reds. Have, uh, have maintained uh, a relative stable price from, uh, from last year. Matolo Family Farm Sales and Marketing Manager John Telekitis. Ausveg SA Chief Executive Jordan Brooke Barnett says onions present good value for consumers with other fresh produce hit by inflation. We're seeing similar demand as last year. We've had a lot of supply into the market. Over winter, they're holding relatively stable at $2 a kilo, which is you know, good value for the consumer. We suspect with some other states coming on board that there'll be good suppliers for the, the coming period. You said that the price of onions has been sort of sitting at about $2 a kilo in Australia and that's remained um, pretty stable. So that's you know quite a, a different to the trend of a lot of prices going up at the moment. Why do you think supermarkets aren't putting the cost up on onions? Onions has been performing well, but you know, we have seen significant price rises across other staples. Um, and I think what consumers are going to really notice at the supermarkets is, you know, post-COVID, you know, where we have have less availability of labour, the cost of everything's going up, and we potentially see, you know, some businesses leaving the industry. It's, you'll see individual commodities from time to time go up. We've seen, you know, price increases in commodities like bananas, individual vegetables. We had the well-publicised lettuce issues last year. We're going to see more and more of that because the margins are incredibly tight for our producers at the moment. You know, and if our farmers, you know, can't make a living, then it makes it hard to supply the whole of Australia. So I think we're in a new world where unless we address these labour issues, these costs of production for our producers, we're going to see individual supply stop. Ausveg SA Chief Executive Jordan Brooke Barnett ending that story from Sophie Holder and Eliza Berlage. I'm Bridget Herman, bringing you Countrywide. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. If you're a farmer, you probably haven't thought about asking customers to share the risks and the rewards of what's being grown for them. But that's exactly how Echo Valley Farm in Queensland's Southern Downs operates, with people signing up to support the farm through thick and thin. It's called Community Supported Agriculture. Jennifer Nichols spoke to first-generation farmer Randall Breen, who started his regenerative farm with his wife Janita in 2014, just west of the Great Dividing Range in the Goomborough Valley. Our core focus is about building soil health and healing landscape, so trying to really deeply connect to our landscape and listen to the cues that that landscape is telling us, what it needs and what it's trying to achieve, which sounds a little woo-woo, but just observing the landscape and then utilising animals and practices to help to heal it. So that might be something that might be considered a weed by conventional mindset. We can see as an indicator a plant that's trying to heal the soil. And so we use cows, chooks and pigs at this current moment to work with 
us symbiotically to heal the soil. So moving everything constantly, so we call it nomadic agriculture, so moving them across the landscape from daily to weekly, regularly shifting to help heal the soil. Sounds quite labour intensive. Yeah, it definitely is. That's probably one of the most challenging aspects of this farming model is that it takes a lot of labour. And so that's one of the challenges. But yeah, it's a labour of love. And how much land do you have? Um, so we span across two properties. In total, it's 650 acres. So there's a fair bit to work with there. Yeah, there's a fair <laughs> bit of country. It's, it's a really interesting mix of previously conventionally farmed land, about 50-50 between that and remnant vegetation. So it's a very undulating farms, moving from quite high basalt ridges down onto creek flats. Probably the areas that need the most regenerating is the previously farmed land. It was quite over-farmed in its life, 120 years of conventional agriculture. What have you seen as results of your labour in terms of the land? I think the critical thing has been the increase in diversity. So once we shift our mindset away from trying to stop things from growing, be that weeds or things that we don't desire and we actually let all things grow, we start to build diversity. And the reason we want diversity is that diversity builds resilience. So if we are only running a single species of plant, be that a monocultured crop or one species of grass, we're only one catastrophic event away from having nothing having a desert essentially so what we've done is over the almost 10 years of us being in this location is that we're starting to see more and more diversity of species of plants which is building resilience into our system and how does your property look compared to the neighboring ones (laughs) um we get comments from our neighbors saying geez your place greens up really quickly after rain i think that's probably the critical thing is because it's we're trying to build hydration through the growing of multiple species of plants so that we retain every drop of moisture that falls on the soil what sort of water sources do you have from the sky we don't have any creeks or anything on our property but underground water in our area is really really good and so how many animals have you got and how does your business work (laughs) yeah Cool. Good questions. Um, Animal numbers is a constantly changing thing. So we're constantly trying to balance mouths to feed availability in our landscape. So at the moment, as we're starting to dry out, we're seeing an El Nino coming on and and we've definitely noticed the drying of our landscape. So we're actually at the moment in the process of moving animals on, either into an adjustment or selling animals in order to reduce the number of mouths that need to be fed on our landscape to try to balance that with how much grass we're growing and how quickly it grows. From that, we're producing eggs, pork and beef. And so those products, we direct market and work with customers to grow a whole range of different products that we then feed our customers. We call it a CSA model. So that's community supported agriculture. And so the concept is that our customers actually become partners in our farm, essentially. They sign up as a member, generally for 12 months. But we've got members who have been part of our CSA program since we started in 2014. And so what happens is this is about the people that we feed sharing in both the risk and the reward of producing food. So if we have a really tough year, so 2019 was a really rough year for us in a drought, our members actually chose to reduce how much food we were giving them but continue to pay the same amount and as a result that enabled us to retain animals on our landscape so that we could start again when the rains came, which is just quite amazing. And then the other extreme is when we have seasons of abundance, when we're producing excess, they get to share in that reward as well. And you've actually been building something pretty exciting on the farm. Yeah, so the latest thing over the last... uh, It's taken about two and a half years, but the last 12 months significantly 
there's been developing an on-farm boning and packing room. And so that's about trying to take back control in what happens with our products and trying to honour their whole animal in the production of food. And what's been beautiful is that we've done that in partnership with our CSA members. We had a crowdfunding campaign and managed to raise the funds to actually build that building. So it's quite amazing. When you build that relationship around your food system, people stand up and step up to the challenge of trying to make it work. You must have made some pretty special friendships over that time then. Absolutely. Just quite remarkable connections with people. Just thinking of a young guy called Connor, who's only nine years old, and he came out with his family to plant trees on our farm. So that's one of the things we do with our CSA members. They come to the farm regularly, help us with all manner of different things. And he came out to plant trees. He wasn't really keen on the idea initially. Anyway, he spent the day with us sticking trees in the ground and talking about why this is important and how some of our heavily over-farmed land that we're trying to regenerate needs trees back in the landscape and all that sort of thing. And anyway, his, his mother sent us a message on the way home because he said, oh, mum, I think I get it now. We help the farmers because they produce our food. And so I think those deep relationships is just such a special way to be engaged in food production. It must be tough at times, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's a challenging career or a challenging vocation to choose, but I think the benefits far outweigh the challenges. Randall Breen from Echo Valley Farm. That's all for Countrywide this week. I'm Bridget Herman. You can hear more on the ABC Listen app and find out more news on the ABC website. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.